a lot of emotional stuff that goes around with saying you're going to start a company, especially yeah. when you're going to start a company based in your experience of addiction recovery. Hello everyone, this is Neil Devani, and welcome to season two of The Operators, a show about the people creating change in our world. The Operators is produced by Necessary Ventures, an early stage venture firm investing in what the world needs. Learn more at necessary.vc. In this season of The Operators, we're talking to leaders who have had a vision of changing the world and actually took the leap of faith to pursue that vision. Each guest has found supporters for their mission, built full-time teams around them, and raised millions of dollars to get to where they are. We get to hear their stories and how they've overcome the obstacles to creating change. Before we meet today's guest, on The Operators, we like to highlight brands doing good. Today's is Warby Parker, the top online eyewear company. Warby Parker has distributed millions of pairs of glasses to those in need through their Buy a Pair, Give a Pair program and are now donating PPE and other preventative health supplies to help in the fight against COVID. Go to warbyparker.com slash the operators to learn more. Now let's meet today's guest. Today we're talking to Holly Whitaker, the founder and CEO of Tempest, a modern alcohol recovery program that helps you stop drinking and feel better. Holly was an executive at one medical group before she left to fight her own battle against alcohol, a battle that led to her building her own recovery program that eventually became Tempest. She's also the author of Quit Like a Woman, an amazing book about her personal journey and the role of alcohol in our culture. Holly has raised over $15 million for Tempest from great investors, including Mavron and Slow Ventures. Full disclosure, I'm also an investor. Learn more at jointempest.com. Now let's meet Holly from Tempest. Holly, thank you for joining us for an episode of The Operators. Really thank appreciate you. you being here. Thank you for having me. Um, just to start, can you tell us a little bit about where the idea for the company came from? Yeah, so it came from my own experience. I was working in healthcare. In uh, I started at a startup, a healthcare or health tech startup in 2009. And I, uh, I think this is right around when Obamacare was... Um, when we were in the middle of the ACA and Obamacare was, you know, kind of the thing everyone was talking about. And I was deeply uh, involved in a, in a company whose mission was to change the way that people access healthcare. And I, like so much, I'd never worked at a mission-driven company before and it was, you know, kind of my life. And as I was working at this company and also working in a position that was focused, I was the director of revenue cycle management. So I was my job was to make sure anybody that came to our clinics, we were healthcare providers, anybody that came to our clinics could use their health insurance card and looking at how we pay for um, how we pay for healthcare and what works. I was struggling severely with bulimia, um, with uh, escalating alcohol addiction, pot addiction, cigarette addiction. And so I had this experience where I was building the thing. Um, I was a, I was you know definitely our target demographic for what we were offering. And then I turned to the system I was creating and I talked to a friend of mine who was a doctor about what was happening to me and how I could seek treatment. And I watched her Google how to treat me and refer me outside of the system we were building. And so my my um, inspiration for starting Tempest came from I mean, essentially that moment of, of realizing how addiction is, is firmly left out of healthcare. And, and from the experience after that, I, I pieced together, I hacked together my own recovery um, outside of traditional methods, outside of rehab. I did it without missing a day of work. And 
my experience of creating something that I wanted also showed me there was a huge gap in the market if I was having to pull this together on my own outside of all the systems that existed. That's a, a very intimate personal journey to finding uh, a market need. Did you, did you know before you realized this was an opportunity, um, not just for yourself but for other people, that you wanted to start a company? Or was this the thing that you're like, I need to do this and a company is the way to do it? I think it's so interesting. I definitely was interested in our CEO, and I, I actually, um, I think I studied what he did. I studied the way he ran a company, and I always, in my mind, was, uh, you know, kind of rehearsing this thought: if I had a company, I would do this differently, or if it was my company, I would be doing this differently. Yeah. But also researching and interested in how he was pulling off what he was doing, as I was and had been for every, you know, um, C-suite or C-level uh, person I'd worked close to. So I think that there'd always been a fascination with, a, and, and, and definitely a fascination with startups and um, Silicon Valley. Uh, I went to school in Santa Cruz and worked in Silicon Valley when I was right out of school. And I, so it was always there, but um, it wasn't like I was sitting around and like figuring out how to pitch. Though I did, I used to for fun go to like pitch competitions, and um, so it's one of those things where I would have never told you, yeah, I definitely want to start my own company ever. But all the things I was doing were supporting that trajectory, and were you know definitely reveal from like it like from here, I can definitely see I was doing that because I was chasing something I wanted to do that I couldn't necessarily name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so you had some sort of desire to to create something or yeah. intimacy and familiar with yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. And you're you're going through this very intense personal journey. Um, what was the moment where you said this is this is a company as opposed to say a nonprofit or yeah. just something that you're going to do on the side and, and write about? Because I know you did a lot of writing as yeah. well. When I quit my job unexpectedly unplanned I just quit my job um, because I had had you know I, I was no longer fit for me to work at the company with that um, it was I was trying to figure out like well what am I gonna do and then I came out with my story I actually published about my addiction I published a very personal story about how sick I had been um, on LinkedIn and on Facebook and um, essentially outed myself to everyone I had ever worked with and also on some level felt I had made myself unemployable. And so it was just, again, these were not necessarily fully conscious decisions. They were just things that I was doing. And I was on vacation again in Italy in 2014, right after I quit my job. And I was talking to a mentor of mine and she said, well, you know, you're, I mean, she was just like, this is what you're going to do. And you have to do this. Like you have to create a company in the image of the things that you are interested in and, and what you're talking about. Um, so it was, you know, there was no like, oh, I'm going to do this. There was just lots of little like movements towards it. Yeah. Is, is there a moment, not necessarily a moment, but is there uh, anyone you remember uh, when you started that you told or that you started telling people, I'm starting a company or I've started a company as opposed to maybe your mentor saying, hey, you've started a company yeah. where it became your story yeah. to tell? 
Yeah, I went to dinner. I, so I had a severance. I cashed out some of my stock. I was, you know, I think I, I went to dinner with one of my friends just weeks after I had quit my job. It took me about two months to get out of the company. And I told him like, hey, I'm going to start a company and it's going to take everything I have. And I'm going to sleep on your couch and I'm going to Airbnb my apartment. And I just like told him, like, I'm going to ask for your help. This is mm -hmm. what I need. And I started actually going around and telling all my, you know, the friends that I needed help from this is what I'm going to do. And so you had that conviction internally yeah. well before you told anyone. Yeah, I did. I mean, it's like one of those things. It's, it's two things. It's one, like moving toward this and knowing this is what I was interested in. At the company I was at, I was implementing things. Like, for instance, I had a, med you know, it's primary care. I had a me my meditation teacher come and talk to at Provider Rounds about how to incorporate meditation into um, the healing journey. And there were things that I was very specifically interested in doing. And so I was like piecing this bit together. And I think by the time I consciously was like, I am going to start a company um, to do this, um, it was already well baked in because of all the things that I had been doing around it, all of what I had been collecting, all the conferences I went to, the wireframing, the thoughts around it. And so I wasn't like, I was convicted that this had to happen either through the company I was working at before or afterward in my own company. And I think that there's a lot of emotional stuff that goes around with saying you're going to start a company, especially yeah. when you're going to start a company based in your experience of addiction recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was like, but yeah, by the time I left that company, I wrote my goodbye letter to everyone that I worked with. There were about probably 700 people at the time. And I was like, I'm going out to do what we did for primary care, but to do it for addiction. But I also felt like I just, I felt like I was also, you know, like I was like, am I going to do that? Like there was just also this, like, I'm full of crap. Like I, you know, I'm not really going to do this. You I'm had self-doubt. Yeah. And I don't even know self-doubt. It's just like meeting the aspiration with the like actual work. Like, I mean, it just kind of kept on saying, well, I'm going to incorporate and I'm going to like create a website. I, like the things I was going forward and doing, I think, um, it felt in, you know, at one moment, like entirely, of course, this is going to happen. Of course, this is inevitable. And then also at the same time, um, just like, um, fake. <laughs> <laughs> When you when you started telling people, especially yeah. people that you were saying, yeah. I'm going to stay on your couch, I'm going to ask you for this, yeah. how did that feel? By the time I was saying this, I knew I was going to do it. I've been working on it for a year in, in one form or another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the people I told were incredibly supportive. One of them was the person whose couch I lived, I lived at his house, was my product partner from my current job. So somebody okay. I, had, I had worked closely with for a long time. And... Um, another friend was a doctor friend of mine who, again, I had worked with um, at this company and, again, like asked her if I could stay with her at her apartment and couch surf while I was figuring this out. And, yeah, I think, you know, anybody from my mom, the people that I was, I was telling absolutely believed I was going to do it. Did anybody push back or have questions based on the fact no. that this was a very personal thing? It was about addiction as no. opposed to something else. Mm -mm. Everyone no. bought into that idea, too. Yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah. I think I wasn't like I was running around and telling every single person. I, sure. But also at the same time, I was, I don't know. It's like it's so hard to go back because you paint like your current reality over your past. But I, I started to, I was just like I kept on like this like momentum I had around it. I would talk to anybody that I could around it. And I was like, I'm going to start a different path toward recovery. I'm going to write about this. I'm going to... Um, you know, build a company that's going to help people recover in a way that we, you know, don't help people now. And 
So like, I kind of feel like, you know, there was, I was surrounded by people that were supportive of it. And I also think there was just a a very, you know, you know, like, I I also think I was careful about who I told. It wasn't like I was running around to strangers and saying, yeah, I'm building, you know, it was, I think, um, people you expected to support. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. When did you have to go beyond that circle? Start talking to people, for example, who didn't know you or your work ethic or didn't understand your knowledge and intimacy with the need you were trying to serve? Yeah, the first, um, so when I sold my stock, I, I did a pre-sale on uh, stock that I was holding in my in the current company, and it brought me into contact with a venture capitalist, and he was one of the first ones that I told. And so I actually put together a really sad, adorable pitch deck and um, that was like, it was like in Comic Sans font or something, or Lobster font. It was, it was like lobster. just, <laughs> it was so bad. And like, it was just like, do you still and have adorable. that somewhere? I do. Yeah, I yeah. can show it to you. I would love to see um, that. And I, I put it together, and I, and it's actually very close to the vision I have that we're carrying out today. Um, but yeah, I, I went, and I was. I, he was like, "Hey, come in and tell me what you're doing. Like, while you're doing this, come in and tell me about what you're doing. I'd love to hear about it." And I went in, and I sat, and I talked to him. And at the end of it, it's like, "What do you need?" Like, it's like asks, and I, it was all advice and money. And like I said at the end, so like my last slide was basically so you know, venture capitalist, sir, um, I would love to have your advisorship and some money from you. And he was like, that is a great, like, that's a great presentation. And I'm fully and firmly behind you. I think you need to start actually writing about this and talking about this and creating some kind of actual platform. um, Because what you're, what you are trying to do is so different than what actually exists. And I don't know if that was because I was a girl. I don't know if it was because what I was what I was like, you know, trying to build was so far fetched. Um, but he, his advice to me was to go out and to start building a platform around my very different ideas about how people should recover and about alcohol. And so, and that's what I did. And so, when when I started, you asked me how other people took it. Yeah, I just went forward and started publishing on a blog and on an Instagram handle very different ideas about addiction, addiction recovery, and creating my own, like creating a name for myself within like a a space that did not exist yet, that now exists very largely within like the Sober Curious movement. But I just, I took up that space and I made that claim. And then everything started to move from that. So I was talking like not even just, it was no longer about people I was selectively telling. Everyone I knew, like to a degree new at that point, I was, you know, I used every bit of like personal network I had from LinkedIn to Facebook to Instagram to devote to promoting this and passing what my beliefs were outside of my network, which then brought other people outside of my network into the space that I was creating. And so everyone I knew, I made sure of it, knew what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I leveraged my network and every single piece that I had um, at my, at, like every every privilege I had I used to promote a philosophy that was not really like in existence at the time from which to build a business on top of. Did, did that uh, philosophy, did it feel fully baked at that point or was yeah. it still evolving? And that's like the thing. I mean, it felt fully, it was fully baked for, for as much as it could have been at that point. I wrote yeah. an article in 2015 called 
how to evolve Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's very in line, again, with the stuff that we're actually doing today. Yeah. That we need to have ideas of pre-addiction and we need to treat people earlier, that we need to remove labels, that we need to bust anonymity, that we need to actually, like, create a holistic approach that brings together, like, biological, psychological, spiritual, existential into one. Like, there were so many things in what I was talking about. Um, and sometimes I feel like they were more fully baked then than they are today just because of, you know, like you you grow and you change and you shift. And I, But for, I, I feel like I have allowed myself to, I've been really, really clear that I wasn't going to wait to be perfect to go forward. Yeah. And that has been, I don't care if it's something I like, that I was, I did not care at the time if I was fully right. If I, like, I allowed myself to still figure things out without thinking I had all the answers. And that has served me really well continuously as I move forward. Yeah, I think it's necessary. It'll never be fully right. And so whatever you're doing, you have to start moving. Get it out there. That's yeah. right. It is. It's a matter of just putting forth what you've built and, and continuously, like, like it's about, sh it is about shipping, right? Like Absolutely. Yeah. Did you, did you start getting pushback as you went outside your known network in your community and you were oh, saying yeah. these things are a little bit more uh, controversial to people who you don't know and don't know you? Yeah, I posted, I wrote an article in late 2014 called, um, Hi, my name is Holly, and I'm not an alcoholic, and then asterisk, because there is no such thing as an alcoholic. And I wrote that, like, to be, to push the envelope and, and to push the boundaries on I bet that worked. Use. Yeah, it did. Um, I mean, I got, like, 40,000 reads at the time, which was, it was, I posted it on LinkedIn. It was an interesting, it was an interesting piece, because, like, it gave me sensitive, it gave me a sensitivity around who's actually out there and who's reading these things and how yeah. it hits them. Um, and then it also, I think like it all, it in some ways allowed me to change how I talk about certain things. And then it also allowed me to, to, in, to incorporate other people's experience, not just my own. It was, the pushback was very real. When I wrote that article, I will never forget that within minutes of posting it, this man started writing me in my LinkedIn messages and said, you are very dangerous. You do not know what you're doing. You are going to kill people. People need to know, like, people are always looking for reasons to not call themselves an alcoholic so they don't have to quit drinking. And you are giving people an out from actually looking at how sick they are. You're allowing people to be in denial. And I just didn't, I, I mean, it, that was terrifying to hear. And also, I didn't believe people having a choice of how they identify was the dangerous part of it. I thought not giving people a choice was the dangerous part of it. And so I persisted. But yeah, I got a ton of pushback. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a, that's a really challenging place to be. So can you unpack that a little bit in terms of what he's saying is that if you let people escape having the label, they will do so and then drink themselves to death. Yeah. And you're saying forcing them to take the label is what causes them to be in denial? No, I think the people, I, what I'm saying is, I mean, his approach is system before people. Trust the system. The system works. People can't be trusted. And my model is people can be trusted. And the people, the system should serve people. The system shouldn't, like, you know, force people into, like, one model. And so we're talking specifically about addiction. Um, we believe people need to be coerced into treatment, that people need to, that people are in denial of their sickness, that people... Um, are inherently, you know, um, flawed and also, um, it, like, we believe people don't want this and they will totally lie to themselves to not confront what's actually, you know, killing them. 
And I have a very different perspective on that, which is that when you, you know, and so, and so that model means for the most part, there's interventionists, there mm -hmm. are, you know, there's coercion into treatment or, you know, eventually jail. Um, we have a, we have a model that essentially thrives on this idea that individuals that are sick with addiction are, um, incapable of telling themselves the truth, incapable of being truthful to themselves and, and like making the best decisions. And what flows from that is a system where there's no agency, where the provider or the guy with the badge or the person with the letters after their names or the person in the white coat doesn't matter. The, like the, the system is smarter than the person in. And the system knows what you're supposed to know. And my whole belief system is that when you trust people and you believe in the best of people and you give them the right support and the right structure um, and you actually come at this from a way that doesn't rob them of their ability to choose for themselves, what they will call themselves or what type of treatment they'll seek or that you have, uh, you flip the model on its head and you no longer have this system where there are, you know, our doctors tell, you know, like where, where people's, you know, own bodies don't belong to them or their own decisions don't belong to them. And that is like the healthcare model that we have, which yeah. currently says a doctor is smarter than you. You don't know best. This person over here up on this platform with these letters and this degree and this license is a smarter person about your body and your choices than you are. And so to come like back to it, to bring it full circle, I just, I believed that it would, that we have to actually like pull this like bandaid off of around addiction treatment, which is inherently believing that the person that is struggling with addiction wants to be sick, doesn't want help, has to be forced into treatment and has to remember how sick they are to stay sober, to remember that they're alcoholics in order to not drink. My belief was, um, to allow, you know, like to trust people that when you give them the resources and that sense of like developing agency that you are going to have individuals that make the right choices. We have historically optimized for the well-being of society when it comes to mental health treatment and addiction treatment. Like that has, that has been it. That is why there is no, like that is why they're, they're two of the most underserved types of um, illness, like not that's right, right? And it's also why, like, it's why we have, you know, we're right now in downtown LA. It's why we're surrounded by homeless people that are living on the streets. Like, we do not take care of people um, who are mentally ill. We don't take care of people with addiction. We take care of, like, what's best for society. And so in this case, I think to pull it back into what we have done and what I have always believed is that it's to optimize for the individual well-being. Because when you optimize for the agency of the individual, when you optimize for for, their, for them making choices for themselves or believing that they are worthy human beings that deserve to have a say in their treatment um, or, right, not treatment. Um, I think that you start to basically give us all that right, right? Like yeah. all of that privilege of being able to decide for ourselves and to be supported in those decisions. But we've, we, this is why we lock, I mean, this is where, like, insane, insane asylum started by, because people wanted to send away their crazy relatives. We started paying other people to look after our people because we wanted to move them out of, you know, essentially, like, our, our like, comfortable social okay, safety. Yeah. That's right. And so that's what we do with this stuff is we sweep it under the rug. So then what happens when we're confronted with it and we have it? Um, we're afraid and we sweep it under the rug. And so I think there has to be like a radical transformation of how we look at individuals that struggle with conditions that historically leave them out of the conversation of what they will and won't be and what treatments they will and won't receive. 
I want to go back to where we were talking about the time that you had built some support in your network, but when you went outside of your network, you were still getting pushback and learning uh, from people. You had tried to raise some money then, but you hadn't had much success. What did it look like the second time you tried to raise money? Yeah, the second time I tried, so I met a good friend of mine, Steve Schlafman, um, and I met him when he was about a month sober, and we became friends, and I just immediately, he was the only VC that I had ever met that I, like, that I had, um, that I, like, knew and also liked, and so he and I hung out. We were, like, going to addiction conferences and just kind of talking, and on my second attempt, he helped me to start to shape the narrative around it. I had the business running at the at the time that he and I started like looking at partnering up and raising funds. I had um, at about 500 people had gone through my program, and um, I had really good margins. And it was just a matter of like it was a, it was a you know there's there's either like the curve of like I can serve incrementally you know up to like 350 to 500 people a year in the model I have now and build it over time, bootstrap it, where I can raise money. And I can serve a lot more people. And so at that point, I went out and tried to talk to investors. But a couple things. There was not, you know, opiates were like the opioid epidemic was starting to, like, expand people's awareness into, you know, the need for different treatments around addiction. Um, but it was still really early days. And I still was, you know, my, my model was still, like, still half-baked and in terms of like how like how it could actually scale and how it could actually be like a, a, a viable alternative to something like AA or rehab. And so um, that attempt failed and failed miserably and um, it was defeating and I don't even like it just felt you know half the time like I was so incredibly sure of what I was building and it's and the necessity of it and that it would have it had to succeed and then you know I was I was not able to pay my rent and you know looking at something that felt like it could just implode at any moment what did it look like when you were building without money how did you do that the getting off the ground or bootstrapping phase so to speak um perseverance I mean that's just it like I I know that's like not the answer you're looking for, but like I, um, I mean, I got a severance package from work, and I also cashed out my retirement. I and I, I also looked at my credit cards as as leverage, and so I was like, I racked up as much debt as I could. I like conserved my cash. I rented out my apartment. I Airbnb'd. Um, I did, you know. I mean, I, I asked for help. I let everybody buy me food and meals, and you know, I just went through it and. I, I, I bootstrapped, I mean, I, there's no other way to say it, but I bootstrapped. I just figured out how to hack together my first program, my first offering. I started taking money from doing, like, one-on-one -on -one coaching. I went to workshops to learn how to sell things. I, you know, became my own marketer. I became, you know, all, like, when you start your own business, like, you just have to learn how to be all these different pieces of it. And I learned how to do my marketing. I learned how to do my sales. And I had an incredible, like, you know, offering um, that was not, like, there was not, there really weren't any sober coaches at the time. Um, and then I created a program, and I started collecting uh, money from people, and that gave me the leverage I needed to keep reinvesting in it. Was it a conscious choice to take that risk, or was it more like you kept going and at some point realized 
even though you thought you were at the end of your limit, there was still further to go. I ask because my guess is that most people, if they knew up front that they'd have to max out their credit cards, sublet their apartment, and live that way, with the risk that even after all that, they might still fail, most people wouldn't even start on the path. I would never give that advice to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But I believed, I mean, all I did was read business books, read, like I read every book there was, I swear to God, I must have read like, I, like hundreds of books that first year. I went to whatever courses I could. And I, this is like, I think this is where, you know, where it comes. The the reason I did all that was because I absolutely believed I would die if I did not make this thing work. I absolutely believed in what I was building and how important it was to put it out in the world. And I would have done anything for it. And I mean, that's the difference between somebody that's like, hey, I'm going to, like, come up with this idea, you know, like, that's the difference between sometimes something that's on Shark Tank, you know, where it's just like, I'm going to get rich off of this. I didn't give a freak about getting rich. I just didn't even care. I appreciate you censoring that. Yes, thank you. Freak. Um, I didn't, yeah, I just didn't care about making money. I cared about doing what I felt I had to do and what I knew could be, um, could make such a difference. Um, and the thing I needed. And so that's the difference, you know, like I, like, here's what I would say to somebody. If you have a bleeding heart desire to bring something, you know, needs to exist into the world, do whatever you can to support that creation. Like there, you will be, you will be supported in that. You will like find the breaks along the way and the thing at the right moment. I ran out of money when that second attempt to raise money, I totally ran out of money. I couldn't pay my rent. I just asked for donations from people in my community, and I had this flood of donations. I got a couple thousand bucks, and it helped me, like, it kept me going to the next thing. And so, um, but I would never tell somebody who just is, like, who just wants to be in business for themselves or who just, like, like, you know, is looking for that idea and, like, finds an idea to go, like, because it's not going to sustain you. The thing that sustained me through all of this and that helped me to move to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And, like, to suffer through that much insecurity for years was because I absolutely believed in what I was doing and that I had to do it. And that was what sustained and was the trade-off for the risk that I took and all of it. When you were speaking to people to invest in the company after that period, did you see a change in how they were responding to you? When I pitched um, during, like, the second time um, – you know, everyone was like, there were no, no one was buying the religion of what I was selling, you know, and they weren't buying the model either. And I think you have to have one or the other. And, um, and by that, I just mean they have to just completely believe in the magic of what you're building. Um, or they actually have to look at like how you're going to scale it and how it eventually will make them, you know, be profitable and make them a return. So I didn't really have that when I was in that second round. Um, so that was like 2016, and then in 2017, I, uh, a good friend of mine and a founder of Groups, uh, which is um, opiate addiction, like a, a chain of opiate addiction recovery centers, um, Jeff DeFlavio, called me and was like, it's either now or never. You're either going to scale this thing and actually build this into what you want to, or you can keep on going, you know, in your way. But like, I would say this is the time and that you need to get on it, and I'm here to help you do it. And so um, Jeff That's became – well, I mean, we were, like, talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it wasn't yeah. like – but he just was 
he was he was the only person I knew in the space of addiction recovery that got it. He was the only person I knew that understood how to leverage capital and and also how to leverage um, to leverage that and, and to build like an actual like mission based organization that was not about making him rich. He really was in it because he was like, this is so messed up, and there has got to be a better way to help people recover from opiate addiction. And he yeah. came like he was a he was actually a, an MD and he was in um, he was in his uh, in his, I don't think he was in his residency. I think he was just in, like, you know, his um, under undergrad or grad, whatever it is that makes you a doctor. Anyway, he was in that process, and he was, like, he had exposure to the system, and he was, like, whoa, this will never work. This will yeah. never help people, you know, recover from addiction to opiates, and he came up with a business model that's now incredibly successful. And so, anyway, he called me, and he was, he just said, let's do this and let's, how can I help you figure it out? And, um, this needs to, this needs to be a thing that exists. And so I worked on a model with him and then I, I, I spent the month of August, 2017 every day in my, I left, I moved to my mom's back to my mom's again, like gave up rent, like saved money, moved in with my mom and spent every day in my childhood bedroom piecing together a pitch deck that would actually tell the story of why people needed to have religion about what I was building, why they why they should care, and also where it was going and why they should, you know, be part of it. And so, um, and it worked. And in that case, I think we ended up, during our that series, uh, Seed, um, I think we probably, pit, I must have pitched like, you know, 70 different um, Probably, I think I had probably at the end of it seventy different calls. Um, it was painful. Um, yeah. It is a lot, but it was also we came up, we came away with incredibly good partners. We Slow Ventures was um, led around and Female Founders Fund and Refactor. I had you know three incredible like investors on my side um, or investor firms on my side, venture firms on my side that believed in what I was doing and believed in what we were building and saw it. And um, that was such a gift. So you now have money to invest in the company. Um, you had money to hire people to expand your operations. And you've just raised another round, your Series A. Tell me about that. We actually raised a bridge round. So we raised 2.3 and then 2. And then we did a Series A. Um, and so all in all, we've raised about $15 million in a few years and went from, I mean, two and a half years ago, it was me and half an employee. And now there's 45 of us. Wow. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's, it is, it's really hard because it's, it's really hard to actually, um, I've been so in it in, su in such a grind against it for, so many years now that it's um, it's hard to like step back and appreciate what it is and what it's become. When you had yet to raise your first dollar, I'm sure you had thoughts about how things would be in the future. Now that you're here with money raised, you have a lot you want to accomplish. What's different now about what you want versus what you expected it to look like way back when? That it would get easier. When you had money, yeah, which isn't true at all. I was just like, I mean, during those early days, it was just like, oh, God, I don't have insurance, you know, and like, oh, like, I don't have a lawyer, you know, and like, um, I don't have the right, like, I, like, my, my, my disclaimers and privacy policy and everything, like, I did not get a lawyer to help me with that. I did all my, you know, like, everything around, everything I did was so happy. 
and it felt so scrappy. And I was like, I wanted money because I felt like money would make it easier. And money has not made it easier. It's, you know, it gets, it just, it actually, when I talk about sobriety and recovery, I'm like, it, it gets easier. But building a business does not get easier. The, the larger you get, the more money you bring on. Capital does not make it easier. It makes it more complicated. And so I think that's like the, that's one of the things. I think the other piece is, I heard the, I can't remember her name, the founder of Wild Thing, um, the CEO and founder of Wild Thing, um, which is a woman's clothing company, talking about what it is to be a founder and the loneliness and the anxiety that comes from this stage, uh, like being, we're, we're a Series A company. Um, that is the part that I wasn't expecting that I think is most surprising. How do you mitigate and balance that? I think it's normalizing to talk about it. I moved us to New York in April 2018. Like, I re-headquartered us there, and there were four employees at the time. And that was when I stopped sleeping. Like, I just, it was a time difference, but I would be like, every night I'd go to bed, and then as soon as I closed my eyes, I would just be like, <gasps> you know, and just this crushing weight of, oh, my God, investor reports, or, oh, my God, like, oh, what if we don't raise? What if we run out of money? What if we don't hire? You know, like, all of these new things to worry about propped up and I think like one of the things that has norm like one of the things that I that helps me deal with it is normalizing it that like this is ridiculous like running a company especially like an early stage company um is ridiculous um and it requires everything of you right like from from building culture and and building us, you know, like really just like like you know HR and people to like doing your accounting and your reporting to managing your investors to scale. You know, there's there's literally a thousand things to worry about, and so I think normalizing that is ridiculous. And then also the same things that sustained me in recovery, which is like constantly coming back to my sleep, constantly like coming back to my like my non-negotiables, which are meditation and yoga. Um, hydration, um, you know, like taking care of myself, um, you know, just um, I think normalizing that it's wild and also um, continuing to figure out like how do I prioritize these things. But it's not, it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've written a book notes, like I wrote a book and this is, this is a million times harder than writing a book. I appreciate that honesty. That's good perspective for people to hear. It's hard and nobody should feel like if you're doing this and you're like, this is easy, then something is so off. Like it's not easy. It is so complicated and hard. And then that's actually what makes it like so beautiful. Like I was talking to Kate Ryder, who's a founder of Maven and she said the same thing that it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. And also like, she said the thing that helps her the most is the perseverance, is the just willing, you know, the willingness to show up every single day and build something because you believe in it. Do you think that what you're building has changed at all versus what you thought it would be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, yes and no. It's still, if we, if I still go back to that deck I made in 2013, 2014, um, it's pretty much on target. Um, but yeah, it, of course, it's like it's different in the, in the details, but not different in the vision. Where do you want to go from here? If we have this conversation in five years, where do you want to be? What should things look like? That we have a clinical product, um, something that like is on par with rehab or even like integrates with rehab. 
Um, I think like that we have we have a product that can meet people no matter where they're at. Um, that we have uh, a, a prolific community that's in you know like 100 to 200 different places. Um, and also that it's just ubiquitous, like that what we do is ubiquitous. Um, our program is like a, a natural thing that people think of when they're getting sober. I hope that's true. I'm sure it will be. Maybe we'll check back in five years and celebrate all your accomplishments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if we made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>